This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. Last week, we got through verse 12. We began in verse 1. And we got through verse 12. And we landed, and we actually backed it up and spent quite a bit of time on verse 6. And it actually became the theme of our message on Thursday night and again on Sunday morning, the, uh, where Jesus says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And we talked about various ways in which that actually comes to pass, because it's a promise by our Lord that if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're going to be filled. Well, how are we going to be filled? Now, I know we, we joked about it a little bit last week. We kind of uh, we didn't make light of the scriptures, but we made light of perhaps how a lot of people think these things come to pass. You know, righteousness doesn't get shipped to your house in a box by Amazon. There's not going to be a box show up there with a smiley face on it. Open it up and here's a load of righteousness. It doesn't work that way. It'd be really cool if it did, but it doesn't. One of the ways that a person who hungers for righteousness is filled with righteousness is, again, that they will accept nothing less. Something comes our way and it's either right or it's wrong and we discern between the two. We know because we have the Word of God. We know even better, quicker, and more thoroughly if you have the Holy Ghost. And, and so we make a decision to stay on the straight path rather than to let ourselves veer off either to the right or to the left. Another way that a person who hungers for righteousness is filled is because they come to church, right? And so you're kind of in the right place because you came. You came with an appetite or with an interest. You wanted something from the study tonight. So here we are. Let's come to the table and let's sit down and let's receive what God has for us in the study. So... He spoke about blessed are the, and then all of these things. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers. They which are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then he made it personal here in verse 11. I'm reviewing this because we didn't spend a lot of time on these back verses. We, we parked on verse 6 and we stayed on that for a while. Verse 11, he says, Blessed are ye, blessed are you, when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Blessed are you. And he, then he says why? He says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad when this happens to you. Be, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you did you know that many of the old testament prophets jews of israel called by god men who were trained and who knew how to hear the voice of god and to recognize the voice of god these men that God spoke to and gave them messages to pass on to the people of Israel and of Judah and of Jerusalem in, in specific many times, these men were often hated and persecuted and rejected by their own 
people. Are we noticing a pattern here? Didn't they do the same thing to our Lord? The Messiah that was prophesied of and that they spent hundreds of years waiting for and, and are still waiting for to this day. They are still waiting for Him to come. They rejected Him as well. There's a proverb, it's not in the Bible, but it's a, I think it's a noteworthy proverb. I don't know who first spoke it, but said, prophets have a way of dying by violence. It just kind of happens a lot of times because they have messages that don't always make people feel good. And that's an occupational hazard that you find among ministers of any kind at all, whether they're a prophet, whether they're a preacher, whether they're a teacher, whether they are a genuine apostle, that, that does still occur. It's not quite the way that people think it does. A lot of people don't really know what the word means, but it does still happen. And we say things that people don't always want to hear because we tell people when they're wrong sometimes, when we're bold enough, when we dare to, when we think that they can handle it, or when God makes it clear that that's what needs to happen. We preach and we teach out of the Word, and then really it's up to the person how they're going to react. I can't make anybody do anything. No prophet ever could. Trust me, I'm sure they tried. In fact, I know they did. In fact, I'm thinking of one right now. Was he a prophet? When they came back from exile and began to rebuild the temple, I'm looking back at Reverend Ryder because he helps me out sometimes when my memory gets dodgy. Um, What's that? Nehemiah? Which was the one that rebuked all those priests for marrying Gentile women and grabbed a bunch of them by their beards and smote them? Was that him? You think I'm rough. And I'm not really rough. But there were people that took it to greater extremes back in those days, right or wrong, judge But Persecution will come, either to a greater or to a lesser extent. If you're a believer, if you trust in God, if you've laid your life in Jesus' hands and you are truly His disciple, then you're going to be persecuted eventually, one way or another, either to a greater or lesser extent. In America, it tends to be more passive persecution. You catch heat on your job or from family members or something like that because you have a standard and you're not going to let it down but sometimes it comes in much more overt forms. We don't hear much about Christian persecution over in India, but I'm telling you, it happens a lot. There were hundreds of attacks against believers over there by Hindus, not by Muslims, by Hindus. You don't hear much about them because they kind of keep themselves to themselves, I guess, mostly to their subcontinent. But anyway, Jesus says, if you're persecuted, if and when you are on the receiving end of genuine persecution, not just somebody who's teasing you because you believe in God. I mean real persecution. He says, rejoice. Rejoice. And be exceeding glad. Why? Because it's fun? No, it's certainly not fun. There's nothing, there's nothing particularly enjoyable about being persecuted for the cause of Christ. But when we are persecuted, he tells us to rejoice because great is our reward in heaven. God knows. When someone's coming down on you because of the faith, God sees and God knows. And we are part of a big club. We have a heritage in, a heritage in there with the prophets of the Old Testament. 
Men that, re, that were rejected by their own people when they came on the scene. And I'm telling you, these were bold men. And when they, when they prophesied against the pe their own people, the people of Israel, or when they prophesied against one of the kings of Israel or of Judah, they took their lives into their hands. And I'm thinking of Nathan the prophet, the one who stood against David himself. He went before King David himself, a man uh, whom God loved dearly, a man whom God himself put on the throne of Israel. When, when David had done wrong, when David had pursued an adulterous relationship with the, the wife of Uriah, and how that whole thing played out, you read about it over in the, in, the Old, in the Old Testament, you read about it, and how that all played out. And Nathan the prophet went to David. That's, this is audacious. Walked into the palace, stood before David the king. A king, we forget, has the power of life and death over people. He's an absolute monarch, usually. Used to be that way. Now, if you're royalty in a place like England, you just wear fancy clothes and handle state functions and have your image printed on decorative plates from the Franklin Mint, I guess. I don't know what all's involved in monarchy nowadays, but back then, it was the real deal. And Nathan stood before David and said, well, he told him a story about the man with the lamb. Some of you might have read this. He said there was a man who had a lamb. He loved it. He cared for it. He raised it up. He fed it, he fed it with his own hand, with food from off his own table, something along those lines. And he said, and then another man came by and slew that man and took his lamb from him. And David was enraged and, st and said, the man that did this, he will die. And then Nathan looked him dead in the eyes and said, you're the man. Because you took that man's wife and then you had him slain. Nathan could have died for that. Fortunately, he didn't. David showed that a, a, a better character than that, repented, made things as right as he could, and then moved forward. But let's move on. He tells us to rejoice and be glad if we're persecuted. But now here in verse 13, as we move on to new territory, verse 13, he begins a whole new paragraph and a whole new thought. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And that's that complete paragraph. Let's back it up and let's take this apart and see what he's talking about. Now, first of all, who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? Remember, the teachings of Jesus, the study of the teachings of Jesus is a little different than the study of any other of the New Testament books because all of his teachings are uh, couched isn't quite the right word. All of his teachings are wrapped up in the historical narrative of the Gospels themselves. So if you're going to study the teachings of Jesus, you have to study them in their historical narrative. You have to read the Gospels, read about his life, read about what other people did and how he reacted so you can keep all of the context together and it makes sense. It's not just a bunch of random words thrown into a book. Some people have tried to create those kinds of publications, but you lose something with it. You lose something from it. And then they have to make up for it by writing a bunch of commentary and then who knows if their commentary is even right, right? 
So we want to rely exclusively on the source text. It's not wrong to read other books, but what have we said before? We don't judge the Bible by other books. We judge other books by the Bible. We judge other books by the Bible. I like what Charles Spurgeon said, that old-time preacher back from the 1800s. Uh, he said, visit many books. Visit many books, but live in the Bible. Live in the Bible. And that's very, very good advice. It's always good to read other things and see what other people have to say. Um, well, some of those you probably could skip. Trust me, save you some of your time. But it's good to read other books, but we judge those books by the Word of God. So who is Jesus talking to? Who is Jesus teaching? Well, this is from what's called the Sermon on the Mount. He was sitting in a place teaching a bunch of his fellow Jews. He wasn't teaching Christians. There were no Christians yet. We didn't exist yet. Christianity did not exist yet. Jesus had not died yet. He, was not, he had not yet been the sacrifice for all of our sins, atoning for the sins of the world, as many as believe on him and trust in him for that atonement. None of that had happened yet. So he was a Jew under the law, the law of Moses, teaching other Jews who were under the law of Moses, right? Because we're just going by the historical landmarks here. He had not yet been crucified. None of those things had yet been fulfilled. So he was teaching fellow Jews, Jews who are a chosen people, a chosen people and still have a place in the plan of God when God comes back around dealing with them again. That's all future prophecy. We may get it. We may actually get to that in the teachings of Jesus. We may see when we get over into the latter chapters of Matthew, we'll find out. But so he was teaching a people who were part of an entire called nation. A nation called of God, a people that God practically called by his own name, Israel. Okay, that L refers to God. So he tells them, ye are the salt of the earth. What in the world does he mean by that? Well, salt has lots of usages. We've preached about this before. Salt has lots of usages. We use it every winter to keep people from slipping and falling on their backsides coming into church. We shake that big bag of it out there onto the ice and let it react and melt and all of that. Well, what's that mean? I'm the salt of the earth. Toss me out onto the, under the snow and I'll melt it. I hope we have better uses than that. That's just silly. But salt, and we tend to forget this in our modern age, salt in the thousands of years of human history before we invented refrigerators, salt was used to preserve food. It's a preservative. It has preservative qualities. Is that where we got fat back? Anybody here from the South eat that stuff? I tasted that one time and it almost killed me on the spot. It almost murdered me right where I stood. It was so incredibly salty. Well, they would salt their food in order to preserve it, to prolong its life so that it wouldn't rot. Because especially in poverty-stricken nations or nations that are not fully developed, Food's expensive and it can be hard to come by. Starvation is still a very real problem in parts of the world. It's a very real problem. So salt is a preservative. It's also used for flavoring, but it is a preservative. But right on the tail end of the statement, you're the salt of the earth, he tells his people. But he says, if the salt has lost, the salt have lost his savor, his taste, then wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out 
and trodden underfoot of men. It's good for nothing but to melt the ice with. Not that they had, I don't think they have an ice problem in Israel. What's the weather like over there? I don't know. Do they have snow? They do? I had a feeling you'd know. Thank you. Do they have ice storms in Jerusalem? Does that sort of thing ever occur? Not really that far south. Is it more up north? Just no? Okay, I'll just say no. Not too often. Ooh, it would be odd. Wouldn't, okay, gotcha. Salt of the earth. But if we've lost our savor, what good are we? You see, the Christian, the modern day believer, the person who believes on Jesus Christ is born again by the Spirit of God, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiven of all of their sins. Okay? We have just by being that. Because of God, it's not because of us, it's not because of our own good works or merits. Well, we're not Christians because of our good works or merits, okay? But because of what we are in Christ, we have a natural preserving effect on society around us. This is a real spiritual truth here. The higher concentration of genuine believers, I'm not talking about hypocrites that just fill pews because it's the culture of the town. I'm talking about people that, verse 6, have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. They're people who want to be children of God. We want to be good, not because we're trying to be self-righteous, but because we are letting God work in us and make us into His image. You know what I'm saying? Into the image of Christ, our perfect example. We have a natural preserving um, quality in a society because we're not the one, not that everybody else is, okay, but, but we're certainly not the ones running around murdering each other. I hope. We're not the ones knocking over banks. We're not the ones cheating on our taxes. Tax time's coming, isn't it? It's right around the corner. There's a natural preserving effect there because where you have genuine Christians, then you have a certain standard of morality that comes along with it. Now, I try to be very careful talking about this because, as you know, I try to be precise with my language because I can't stand the thought of being misunderstood. This is not just plain morality, all right? And it is certainly not self-righteousness. Because without Christ, none of us is anything. And so we have no room for pride. We have no room to boast. We don't have any room in our hearts and our lives to have the same attitude of the Pharisees. And we're going to talk a little bit more about them here in a few verses. Uh, round about verse 20, but don't skip ahead yet, okay? We don't have any room for that kind of self-righteous attitude in our lives because we know that if it wasn't for God, if it wasn't for Jesus, we'd be just as lost as we ever were. We'd be on our way to the same hell that we were on the way to when we first came to Christ. So there's no room to boast. There's no room to be high-minded or to be proud or to look down our noses at anyone. It just can't be there. It cannot be in here. It cannot be in here. We can't allow it to be in there. So he says... If the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? What's it good for? What's it going to be used for? He says it's good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. It serves as a warning to us. Christians, don't lose your savor. Don't lose your savor. Don't, you, don't lose your God righteousness. The righteousness that you have because of Jesus. Don't lose the good qualities that God has begun to work in you. Don't lose them, but preserve them, conserve them, practice and exercise them. 
demonstrate them. And I know it's, I know it's a left-wing tree-hugger type of bumper sticker that, that you see maybe in other parts of the country, but you see that silly bumper sticker on some people's cars, especially if you dare go down south into Colorado, okay? You're going to see that bumper sticker. Practice random acts of kindness. All right. I know it's a liberal bumper sticker and a message, but there's a measure of merit to that. If you're a child of God, let's read on here in verse 14, because it's just a complete thought here. He says, you're the salt of the earth, warns us not to lose our savor. And then he says, you're the light of the world. Now he calls us the light of the world. Speaking to the Jews, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. It can't be hid. It's elevated. It's visible to Everything else around it can be seen from miles off. They can see the lights of that city, okay? A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. What does that even mean? I don't light candles anyway. We do around here now, every now and then. That was really nice, that prayer meeting that we had on Christmas Eve. Or, excuse me, on, well, Christmas Eve, the candlelight service. But then again, we had that prayer meeting on New Year's Eve at 11.45 at night to 12.15 in the morning. We prayed out the last sorry old year and we prayed in a brand new wonderful one, right? It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be better. I've already claimed it. I'm standing on that. Anyway, we had these candles all lit and it was absolutely beautiful in here. It was so nice. We decided we're just going to keep some more candles around for a while. I don't know how often we'll use them, but we'll have them just in case we ever want to. But you don't light a candle and then stick it underneath something to hide the light. You don't turn on a flashlight in a dark room and then shove it under your mattress. What in the world good is it? You're in the dark and you got a lumpy mattress. But you flip on the light switch and all these lights come on and it shows you everything. So you don't bark your shins against the furniture. You don't trip over the throw rug. You don't fall down the stairs and, unless you're our daughter. There's a joke in there somewhere. I'll tell you another time. But it reveals. Well, he calls us the light of the world. He calls us the light of the world. It says a city on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Then he gives us instructions here. He's told us what we are if we look to God and we allow God's righteousness to live in us and God to live in us. So now he tells us what to do with it. He says, let your light so shine before men. Don't hide it, Christian. If you're a believer and you're standing on the promises of God and he's real in your life and you're letting his word inform and shape the way that you live, don't hide that. When you're reading your Bible in a public place and someone comes walking by, don't slam that thing shut and shove it in a drawer. What are you ashamed of? When you go to a restaurant and you get ready to pray for your food, but you're ashamed to pray for your food because someone might see you and think you're silly. Why? Now we don't make a big show out of it. We don't turn on the cameras and make a video blog for it to upload it to YouTube. I'm now praying for my food. See how spiritual I am? No, 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 no. It's not about that either. But we certainly should not be ashamed. We shouldn't be ashamed of God. We shouldn't be ashamed of Jesus. Jesus was bold. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you before the Father. So, is that a warning? Well, I guess it is. But 
we love God, we're not going to be ashamed of him anyway. I don't mind praying in public. It's not a commandment. There's no nowhere in the Word of God do you find, you know, the, the words, Thou shalt pray over thy food before thou receivest it. But we do have the example of Christ who blessed the food whenever they ate. And so it's a good thing to do. It shows thankfulness to God. It's one of the things that separates us from the beasts. But that's a rabbit trail. Please forgive me. He says, let your light so shine before men. Why? Why do that? So that people can be impressed by our spirituality, right? So that people can be impressed by how righteous and, and godly we are. No. Why is right next to it. He says, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Not glorify you. Not glorify your church. Not glorify, uh, not exalt you in your great knowledge of Scripture. Because really, that's just supposed to be a light for our feet, a light for our path, a lamp. But so that they'll see our good works and they'll know, they'll know there's a reality in God. There's a reality in serving God. It's not just a religion. It's not just a weekly ritual. It's not just something that you put on a dog tag to wear around your neck so they can identify your corpse on the battlefield. Oh, this guy was a Catholic. This guy was a Christian. This guy was a Buddhist. This guy was an atheist. It's far more than that. They see you live your faith. It communicates a very clear message to them. This is real. Christianity is real. A relationship with God is real. And it gives a lot of people hope. Whether they act on it or not, they will, they'll be able to see. And they'll be able to glorify God. They'll be able to glorify God. Verse 17, let's move on. We're making pretty good time here. Verse 17, he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. What is he talking about? Jots and tittles. What are jots and tittles? Jots and tittles, from what I understand, refer to the little dots, dashes, punctuation marks that you find in the written Hebrew language that serve as vowels. Okay, because the Hebrew alphabet contains no vowels. It's all consonants. Arabic is the same way. I think all of the Semitic languages are like that. I could be wrong. But I know that Arabic and Hebrew are both like that. They don't have actual vowels. They have dots, dashes, or called here jots and tittles. What he was saying, because he was addressing a concern of theirs. He was addressing a concern of theirs. Remember who he's teaching. He's teaching Jews in this. He was teaching Jews. Well, there was some murmuring among some of them because of how people were understanding what he was talking about, that he was going to do away with the law of Moses. And that frightened a lot of them. That frightened a lot of them and made Jesus some enemies. But Jesus was making it clear. He didn't come to do that. He didn't come to do away with the law of Moses. He didn't come to, to, to tear that whole thing down. And you have to understand why that was such a big deal to the Jews because the law of Moses wasn't just the Ten Commandments. It wasn't just a vague religious code telling them a few things that they needed to do and not do. The law was in excess of 600 separate commandments that governed every single aspect of their life. It was more than a religious code. It was a civil code. It was the law of the land. 
Are you following? Are you tracking? It's like taking the Bible and making that federal law for the whole country. You might think that that's a good idea. But I'm telling you, there's some problems that would come with that. So don't pray for that to necessarily happen. There's a time coming when God's going to run this whole thing and the world will be filled with perfect justice. We don't have to worry about trying to make that happen ourselves because it's not going to. I think we talked about this last week or just this last weekend. Man-made theocracies are a disaster. We have what we need right now, a republic that lets us freely serve God without getting arrested and tossed into the clink and then they throw away the room. You know what I'm saying? So he was teaching Jews that were concerned. What's it, what, what, how, does this, how, does, how do his teachings relate to the law? How does this relate to the law? What is he going to do with the law? You know, these were teachings like they'd never heard before. So he puts their mind at ease. He says, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And that's exactly what Jesus did. This is exactly what Jesus did. And if you study the prophets of the prophecies of the prophets, if you study the things that they said and the things that would be fulfilled, and it's not, it's actually not hard to do so. If you have the right Bible, if you get the right kind of Bible, and uh, then what you'll find is a lot of them will mark in the Old Testament among the prophets in the prophetical books, they will mark with a star or with an icon of some kind. They'll mark where a messianic prophecy occurs in Scripture. And it'll point you right to it. You'll find it all over the place in Isaiah. You'll find it even in, among some of the Psalms and in other places as well. You'll see where there was a prophecy that concerned specifically the Messiah. And then it'll point you to where it was fulfilled over in the New Testament. Jesus came to fulfill the law. One of the things in the law was the sin offering. What was the sin offering? Well, when a person sinned in the Old Testament, it cost them. It cost them in real money. And usually that was in the form of livestock. It cost them. And it wasn't a system that was set up that allowed people to uh, buy their way into God's grace. It wasn't about that. If it had been just about that, then they would have said, okay, well, this sin cost $5. This sin cost $500, okay? Sometimes you almost think that that would be a good thing. And you set that price very, very high for people because then it would teach them sin is painful. But the sin offering was part of the law of Moses. When a person violated some tenet of the law of Moses, when they sinned against God, they had to bring an animal, a live, living creature that had never done anything wrong. It was just an animal. And they had to bring it to the priest. And then the priest had to slay that thing, slaughter it, cut it apart, arrange it a certain way on an altar, which was basically a great big grill with a fire under it, right? And then burn that thing, and the blood had to be offered up, and everything. it had to be done in a precise manner. It was ghoulish. It was brutal. Ancient Judaism was a very bloody religion. But the prophecy spoke of a better sacrifice that was going to come and that was going to finish all of that stuff because none of those animal sacrifices were ever capable of changing the human heart, were they? You know, you had a guy that robbed from his neighbor or whatever, he got caught in the act, now he needed to make it right. He had to take a lamb or a bullock or whatever the law prescribed, take it up to the priest, the priest slays it, offers it up to atone for this man's sin. But he was still a thief in his heart, wasn't he? It hadn't changed him any. It hadn't changed him. It hadn't changed his nature. But the blood of Christ 
fulfilled all of that because it changes the corruption of a corrupt human nature. It changes us from the inside. And then that's what begins to manifest on the outside. Jesus on the inside makes you the light of the world, makes you the salt of the earth, makes you, it begins to work in you all of these virtues that people can actually see and understand that there's a reality to this thing called living for God. And we're almost done because we're out of time, but I don't want to end it. Then I don't want to just chop it off right here. He says, think not that I've come to destroy the law. I've come here to fulfill it. Till heaven and earth pass, not one part, not one jot nor tittle of the law shall in any wise pass away till all be fulfilled. Verse 19, whosoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so. So not just breaking the law, but teaching other people to break the law. He shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, maybe I should have waited until next week for this part because you gotta, we have to pick this apart carefully because there's a little bit of punctuation missing. What he is not saying is that he's going to be the least in the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying that he's even going to be in the kingdom of heaven at all. What he's saying is that in the kingdom of heaven, he's going to be called the least. Do you understand the difference there? Because so much of other scripture, even which Jesus himself, even which Jesus himself says, in this same paragraph makes it very clear that People that violate the word of God, violate the will of God, and do not live for God, not, don't, we're not what we're supposed to be, will not enter into that kingdom. And he makes that very clear. So he says here, whosoever therefore, whosoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least. And then you could actually put that in parentheses in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them Whosoever shall do and teach them, in other words, whoever shall do the commandments and teach the commandments, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, and this is the point that I want to get to, and we're going to, we're going to end on this point with, with, here within a couple minutes. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of of heaven. What is he talking about there? We've got to be better. Well, who were the scribes? Who were the Pharisees? We talk about them a lot in churches. We talk about them a lot. And they're an easy target to pick on because they have really become the, the textbook example of self-righteousness and of religious pride and all of these things. The Pharisees and the scribes, these were masters of the law of Moses. These were masters of the law of Israel. These were religious leaders in the community that had taken the word of God and they had pumped it so full of steroids and additions and traditions of men and things like that, that the law was barely recognizable anymore. And it had become, it had ceased to be an affair of the heart. It had ceased to be a life lived as a worship to God. And it had become an exercise in self-righteous pride. Jesus tells us that our righteousness has to exceed theirs. Now, these were devout men. Granted, these were devout men. These were among the strictest of sects of the Jews at that time. These were men that if it was a certain time of day that they were supposed to be reciting a certain prayer and they happened to be walking across a busy street, they would stop in the middle of the street to recite their prayers and they wouldn't be moved until they were done. I imagine there were a lot of people in Israel who didn't appreciate that. 
trying to get to work, and here's this guy in long robes with broad blue garments or borders standing in the middle of traffic holding everything up so that he can show how religious he is. No, 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 no. Jesus says, we've got to be better. Well, how do you be better than someone like that? Don't be self-righteous, for one thing. Let your righteousness be the righteousness that Jesus brings into your life when we accepted him. Let God be your righteousness and then live that righteousness in humility, not in pride, not in high-mindedness. We take it seriously, but we don't allow ourselves to be so exalted that we feel like we're above everybody else because, brothers, we ain't above anybody. We're just people that God saw fit to save and sees fit to save everyone. But we're just people that actually answered the call. We've got no room to boast, and we've got no room to be proud. So let's actually, this is a good place to stop. We'll pick up next week, uh, be at the will of the Lord. Verse 21, ye have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And we'll pick it up from there. There's more to that verse. I'm not just chopping it off because I'm trying to hide something. It's there. You can read it yourself. We'll pick that up next week. And this all ties into what he's saying about our righteousness has to be greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. We cannot be hypocrites. And you see how all of this is tying in the recurring theme of righteousness, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You said you're going to stop this. Now you haven't stopped yet. I know. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> We're almost done. The recurring theme of righteousness, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, letting our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees. All right. Let God work in your life and let him mold you into what he wants you to be. Amen. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.